Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM. Fight of my life with Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver on Talk Sport. Hi there, this is Russ Williams, Spencer Oliver alongside me and welcome to Fight of My Life. How are you doing, Spencer? Yeah, Russ, really good, mate. And do you know what? Super excited for this one. Yes, over the course of the next hour, we are going to be speaking to a former boxer about the defining fight of their career. And we're talking the build-up, the story behind it, the aftermath. We're getting right in there forensically to the things that you might not know about. And on today's show, we'll be speaking to this man. Loftus Road, the home of Queen's Park Rangers Football Club in London, the setting tonight for the biggest boxing occasion in this country since Henry Cooper fought Muhammad Ali nearly 20 years ago for the world heavyweight crowd. Very much a home crowd, and it was great because 12,000 people came from Ireland, North and South. 26,000 people there that night. This is absolutely astonishing. The whole place rocking and reeling with sound. Here we go, here we go. We had to cut through the actual seats and the policemen all got their hats knocked off. It was bonkers. He hasn't found the range. Yes, he did. He's got him with the right. Oh, the champion's over in the seventh. And we had to make him fight at a pace that would exhaust him. And I would just be relentless and stay on him. Well, Spence, before we hear from the clone Cyclone, the one and only Barry McGuigan, what fight are we going to be talking about today? And how you sum him up as a fighter, mate? Well, Russ, we're going back to June the 8th, 1985. Barry McGuigan challenging for the world title against Eusebio Pedroza. Eusebio Pedroza was a formidable champion. He's making his 19th world title defence. He'd been champion for seven years. This was a massive step up for Barry McGuigan, who was British and European champion, was on a great roll himself. But yeah, this was a huge fight, Russ. One thing's for sure, Spence, it will be a night that Barry will never forget. I'm delighted to say that the clone is Cyclone is with us. Barry McGuigan, welcome to the fight of my life. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Russ, and uh, great, great to have Spencer uh, as well along because if anybody knows their stuff, he knows his stuff. The Pedroza fight, of course, the mm-hmm. fight that you've chosen on yep. Fight of My Life and so important for so many reasons. And it was a heck of a fight, a 15-rounder, which these days, of course, just don't happen. Do you remember where you were when you found out this fight was confirmed? And, and how did the fight come about itself? 
Well, yes, I do vividly remember where I was because um, I was the European champion. I wanted to enter the, the world title fight as European champion and I had to make my mandatory defence uh, against a, 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 let's be polite, a, a reasonably uh, easy opponent from France called Farid Galouz. And that was on, and it's an interesting night because it was on sports night, it was on a Tuesday night. Ireland were playing England in Wembley Arena and we were in Wembley Pool in the little small arena there. As I say, it was a Tuesday night and because it was about five minutes or ten minutes between the end of the game, the friendly game between Ireland and England, and then all the Irish guys who'd bought the tickets had to run from there to get to the fight, knowing that the main event was going to be straight on after the actual fight. And, and Santiago Del Rio, who was uh, Eusebio's Pedroza's manager, came in with Pedroza to actually start negotiations on that day. But the guys broke off because they weren't getting anywhere and we understood that it wasn't going to happen. He didn't show up at the fight. And so we were all bitterly disappointed. I didn't know that as I walked to the ring. They kept that from me. But I was looking around to see could I see him, which I never did. I used to always just focus on the ring, get to the corner, get in there, not look at any family members or anybody in the crowd, just focus on your opponent, etc. But I did have a quick sneak around to see could I see him. I couldn't see him and I thought, well, maybe he's just waiting until the fight starts or whatever. And so I knocked him out in a couple of rounds. Most of the guys, the Irish fans that had bought tickets to the fight and the game didn't get to their seats in time. And I think Mickey Duff and Barney Eastwood went back into negotiations in the middle of the night with Santiago Del Rio. They agreed terms at like five or six o'clock in the morning. And when I woke up, the fight had been confirmed. And then I had literally 10 weeks to get ready for the world title fight. Barry, you were two huge names coming together. Could you tell the magnitude of the fight at the time? Well, I mean, he was the champion for over seven years. Um, he'd made 18 successful defences. This was to be his 19th. And I, I, I knew it was going to be a big fight. I never anticipated us getting 19 and a half million people on, on the BBC. And that's not counting... Uh, the people who could get BBC all down the east coast of Ireland but didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> so uh, um, there was another couple of million on, on top of that. So but in any case, I had no idea that it was going to be those sort of figures, but it was. Um, I knew it was a great fight. He, you know, he was a great champion and I knew I was going to have to chase him and put the pressure on but he was brilliant at going back and he was very con big for the weight, five, nine and a half and, you know, square, big square shoulders, didn't look skinny like he was a very powerfully built guy so I, I, I knew Spencer I had my hands full and, mm. and and I knew that it was going to be very difficult he'd, he'd beaten Rocky Lockridge twice he'd beaten Bernard Taylor he'd he'd beaten Patrick Ford he'd knocked him out and he'd beaten all the guys that Sanchez had beaten and and so he was really the lineal champion he was the guy that held the title for so long mm. so it was a it was a great fight for me it was simply get ready get into shape and it was on a bit of a roll because I'd beaten Laporte I'd proved to CBS television who'd come over to cover my fights and the, uh, you know they were just flabbergasted by the being able to come into Belfast which was sort of war, war torn and everything was happening and explosions and people dying every day and yet there was this guy who was sort of fighting if you like for peace and you know he was trying to get people to come together they wanted to see me tested and they Suggested that I that you know that I fight Juan Laporte, who just lost the featherweight title to uh, Mario Miranda, and um, 
that had happened, that fight had happened in February 85. And as I said, I had to make this defence in order to enter into the championship fight as the European champion. I had to make this defence against this rather hapless French guy. But it was, you know, it was a big occasion and it was building all the time. Pedroza was a living legend, Barry. You know, seven years of champion making his 19th defence. Does that affect your mindset going into a fight of this sort of magnitude? I mean, I, for, for me, I, I, I sort of had a look. It's the first time I've ever done it. I, before coming in here, I looked at, you know, how many fights I had. I was four years as a pro, just four years, just over four four years as a professional, and I had 27 uh, pro fights. But I'd done it the traditional way, um, Spencer and, and Russ. I had I'd done, you know, the British title, the European title, and uh, I fought a guy called Sharm Shatouli, who was the Commonwealth champion and lost it to the great Azuma Nelson. So I built my way up slowly. Nowadays, uh, you know, a lot of fighters get to world titles and are taking chances and much riskier fights, much quicker. But I'd done it the old, old-fashioned, traditional way. So four years as a pro, and um, I felt I was ready. And I know he had fought all over the world. He'd fought in Japan, he'd fought in America, he'd fought everywhere. And he wasn't intimidated uh, about coming to London, but he would not come to Belfast. And that was a wise thing because, uh, you know, it was very, you know, really noisy in Belfast. We sparred outside a couple of times uh, the back of Barney Eastwood's house. He set up a, a ring and I had four or five really good sparring partners over, two guys from Panama, very good fighters, a featherweight and, and the lightweight champion of, of Panama. So they were they were great work. Bearing in mind, I came straight off the, the European title fight against Farid Galouz, where it sort of was, it was a pointless exercise. I knocked him out in the second round, so I had loads of energy. I took a week off, and then I went straight back into camp, you know. You, without a doubt, Barry, knew the challenge that you were facing with Pedroza, an, an absolutely fantastic champion. What was the mood from your memory in your training camp amongst those people who were so close to you as a professional boxer preparing you for what was a, a fantastic opportunity for you, this fight in front of it, essentially a home crowd? Yeah, well, absolutely. It was, it was definitely very much a home crowd. And it was great because 12,000 people came from Ireland, North and South. There was 26,000 people there that night. And there was a long build-up of preliminary fights before the main event. And it was, uh, you know, we knew that it was very, very atmospheric. I mean, I didn't, the preparation was, was long and hard and detailed. We, we uh, as I mentioned, I two guys in my gym, it was Pepe Moore, and he was a light welterweight, and David Irvine, who was a light welterweight, welterweight. So we had done the, the early part of sparring for that. And then we had two Panamanian guys that came in, a guy called Ezekiel and Mosquera, who was the, the lightweight champion of Panama, and a guy called Jose Marmaleo, who was the uh, South American champion and fought Antonio Asparagosa for the world title. And uh, he was a very good fighter. And so they, they were there, and we had another guy from Gary, Indiana, called Dwight Pratchett. He was a super featherweight. Uh, I looked at a picture that I had uh, down in my gym at home in Kent, and I looked at them last night. There was a whole team of us uh, when we went over for the fight on the on the on the fight week. The fight was on a Saturday, obviously, but we didn't we didn't leave until the Tuesday. And I'd I'd sparred fifteen rounds outside, uh, and I'd sparred fifteen rounds 
inside in the gym in Castle Street. Uh, but we'd done a 15-rounder outside just to get accustomed to fighting outside. And I felt great. And it I felt, you know, n- not nearly as tired fighting outside, uh, funnily enough, as I felt. You know, when you're in a, a warm gym, it just saps your energy, as Spencer will know. But I done two 15-rounders and I f- was flying. I felt great. I could have done another four or five rounds. And I knew I had a chance, but I knew it was going to be very difficult because this guy was really good at fighting on the inside. Although he was tall and rangy, uh, and he was great at long range with a, with a really sneaky jab, he threw loads of bolo punches and ripped in uppercuts and could hit the body very well and knew how to hit the, the body and was very good at the dirty tactics. He, when he fought Juan Laporte, he fouled him 110 times. That's the truth about sort of eight months before our fight. And I'd fought Laporte in February as well. So, and he said to me afterwards, you know, this guy's dirty on the inside. He's really good and he'll rip it up and he'll hit you with his elbow and he'll hit you with his head and he'll grab you. So I was conscious of that. And so that's why we got in these two Panamanian guys who fought very similar to him and had a a, a sort of similar technique. Barry, did you follow a certain diet or did you make the weight easily? Well, I, I, I didn't make the weight easy. Uh, I was big. I walked around at 10.4 and I boiled down to nine stone. And here's the thing, and, and, and the difference then was that you only realistically had five or six hours of eating before the fight. You know, you weighed in, for example, we weighed in at the Odeon in Leicester Square and I'll never forget it. And we, we turned up and there was 3,000 Irishmen in the, <laughs> in the Odeon and we couldn't get in. And we thought if we get in the front, we'll never get to the stage, right, which is at the back. So we had to walkie-talkie some guys and they ran up and got us and ran us around the back. And there was every Tom Dick and, oh, Barry, oh, oh. and it was like, Christ, leave me alone, let me get back. Cause I, and of course, you're dry as a bone, you want to get on the scales. So they took us around the back and, and we got to the scales and Pedroza had been fed up waiting and he was tight on the weight and he was a big guy. So he, rather than the challenger getting on the scales first, he got on the scales. He was so pissed off with us. So he got on the scales first. Uh, we didn't get a chance to get there. Uh, Paddy Burns was there, but we, uh, Barney and I were still running towards the stage front. And he got on the scales and the scales didn't settle and Ray Clark was there and he sort of raised his eyebrows. But the WBA official said, that's enough, you get fine, I'm happy with that. And we came in, Barney went ballistic and said, you know, I didn't see him on the scales, I want to see him back on. And he wouldn't get back on the scales. And, and, and that was a, and you might have seen there was a big uproar in front of the crowd and Barney got on the mic and says, we've lost this battle, but we're going to win the war. Absolutely blasting with sound from 25,000 throats. I don't think there's ever been any night like it in the history of British boxing. From the people on the pitch and the people in the stands, under this velvety sky, on a cold, cold night. But my word, this atmosphere is hot. You're listening to Fight of My Life here on TalkSport. Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver delighted to say that Barry McGuigan, world champion, is with us. And uh, we're looking at one specific fight and what a fight it was against Eusebio Pedroza, the Panamanian, undisputed champion of the world at featherweight. And so, Barry, we come to the morning of the 8th of June, 1985, and uh, you wake up on the day of the fight. How are you feeling 
And is it that usual fight day feeling, or was it a little bit different? On the morning of the fight itself, you know, as 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 um, Spencer will tell you, you, the most important thing you're thinking about is I want to get off those scales and I get something to drink because <laughs> you're tight on the weight, and that's the most important thing. So I remember waking up, and it wasn't wasn't any different really than than all the other fights. The only difference was that we were we weren't in Belfast. We were we were in London. It was a Crest Hotel just off the Edgware Road. And funnily enough, we'd bumped into Pedroza running in uh, Hyde Park earlier in the week and he had about 20 guys around him. And I was running with my friend Sean McGivern and it, he was doing, honestly, it was like a fast walk and, and he had a big coat on him. So I knew he was on, he was struggling to make weight, whereas I had all my plastic gear on as well and underneath my tracksuit and we were running around. So we sort of acknowledged each other and ran on. But the morning of the fight, we were just getting to the, to as I say, the uh, the Odeon in Leicester Square. Um, we wanted it to be an atmospheric weigh-in, and and uh, so the border control were there, and of course, as as you mentioned earlier, he got on and 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 the the thing wavered at the top, and he, I don't think for one minute that he was over the weight. I knew he was on the weight, but he was tight on the weight. We finished, and I had Sean. Sean McGivern would always bring my what I would have. I'd have like a soup of of mint steak, and get that down me. And then we would head off back home to uh, to uh, back to our our um, our hotel. And it was nerve wracking because I I don't think I'd ever seen as many people at the weigh in as I'd seen that day. And we went and made our way back to the hotel and and just tried to do and do what I did for all my fights. Just lay down, couldn't sleep, it turned over and and. Uh, relaxed and talked to my family and and uh, and McGivern who was, was my close mate and we went in and out of the hotel and went for a walk and then we found a, a chapel so I used to like to go to a chapel on the day of a fight and we found one just round the back and uh, said a few prayers back to the hotel then Sean reminded me the other night that he got me a Big Mac. <laughs> so that was my last meal, believe it or not, at about six o'clock. And, and I, I, uh, I used to drink, you know, LucasAid, thinking that that was the, the best thing I could take. But, and that was the sort of the, the information you got back in 1985. Uh, I felt in great shape. I, I, I probably put on five, four, five, maybe possibly six pounds. Um, so I don't know what I was. I never weighed myself entering the ring, but I, I probably was about nine stone five, nine stone six. In any case, uh, we then, I think about quarter to eight, we made our way over to uh, Loftus Road. So I got into the van, which had which had Team McGuigan on the side of it, and, you know, come on, Barry. <laughs> as soon as we got to uh, Shepherd's Bush, we just crawled the whole way in because people slap on the side of the van and, it was a huge... We knew at that stage it was going to be really, really atmospheric, you know. So, Barry, you, you arrive at the venue and you get into the dressing room. Barry, tell us what the typical Barry McGuigan dressing room was like. What was going through your head at that time? Well, we, we were at the home dressing room and, and we had sort of it... We had it kind of subdivided so that we were in one of the little rooms off to the side and then the other guys, David Irvine, Davey McCauley, Gary Pepe Moore were on the bill as well. And uh, Harry Cowup, who's a Dublin guy, was on. You know, they they were in another part of of the home dressing room, but but we were in sort of the the main part. And I, I like to see the guys, but you know, I I didn't want you know, and and as you will 
see as well and, and will understand as well, particularly Spencer, that you don't want guys coming in defeated and cut or badly cut and, and bleeding and you see them in a in a bad state. So we had this little, as I say, subdivided room off to the right that we sort of kept only ourselves in there. And, and I was in the dressing room walking around just doing my usual thing taping my hands at that at that stage you know we didn't go in and watch them but they came in to watch us and he made me uh, wrap my hands twice uh, um, Santiago del Rio so he knew what he was doing so uh, just trying to wind us up and I remember getting annoyed at one stage and saying what's wrong with that and he was going mm, yeah and once he knew that I was rattled he said yeah that's okay okay and he, and he left so we were then sort of waiting for for the call from the TV and all the rest and we could hear the above us we could hear the sort of boom 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 of the of the people stamping their feet and then we could hear the chants you could hear all that you could feel all that you 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 were worried about keeping getting your tactics right and and just getting uh you know, we'd planned so much about pressure and just walking, walking him down, but cutting the ring off, and and he wanted the biggest ring that we could get, and I think it was a twenty-foot square ring inside the ropes, which is probably as big as you could get in those days. In any case, what had happened was we had uh, CBS that had covered my fights up until that fight, but Barney had done a deal with ABC. And they really had never covered our fights before. So they had no idea. And to an extent, we didn't really know what it was going to be like in an open sort of football pitch. So, And it was shortly after the Heysel disaster and, and the police were very concerned. There was a high number of policemen there and security and, and so on. And the ABC wanted us to come out of the home uh, dressing room, walk 40 feet up, on the left-hand side of the pitch and then go diagonally towards my corner. And we said, that's not going to work. And they said, no, 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 it will work. We've got enough security guys and everything else and, uh, you know, it'll be fine and, and you'll... And then they, what had happened, you could walk left along the side of the pitch and then you had this metal, in the metal cages that they have or metal barriers that would secure your walk straight to the ring. But, of course, as soon as we came out of the dressing room, the crowd just crowded in around us and we couldn't move. One of the journalists who covered this fight, who described the fans were like soldier ants coming yeah. from all directions into <laughs> into Loftus Road, and you were about to enter them because obviously you're in your dressing room, you're as ready to go as you can be, yeah. and the Rocky theme starts to play, and you start making your ring walk. Pedroza had got to the ring pretty quickly. Yeah. Yours, do you know, can you remember how many minutes it took? It took 12 minutes. There'll never be a bigger reception for Barry McGuigan than this. And when you look at the pictures, Barry, you can't see you. Yeah. You can see one TV camera and just a sea of people. That's right. And, 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 and so it was a disaster. But ABC were to blame for that because they decided they wanted me to have this big sort of big entrance. And, and we said, it's not going to work. We had to cut through the actual seats and the policemen all got their hats knocked off. It was, it was crazy. It was, it was bonkers. It's well not impossible for them to push their way through this huge throng. People blocking the aisles and the challenger can't quite get to the ring. Pedroza was almost in as quickly as me and you could hear they had some Spanish music playing and he got into the ring 
and I, I mean, I, I had just got in and suddenly he was there. So uh, they got straight to the ring and, and it was it was no issue. But it, it was a bit of a pandemonium, the whole thing of, of us getting there. But anyway, we got, we got to the side of the ring. I was fine about it. I just thought it was madder than it had ever been before. It's just crazy. I get a quick swig of water at the side of the ring, get my gum sheet, put it in, get into the ring and I have my gown on still. And I'm sort of what I used to do as a, as a as a uh, as a fighter was I used to dance around the ring and feel what it's like on my feet, squat up and down, uh, just to feel that the canvas to actually know what it's going to be like. So I was doing plenty of that, and then he got in, and then the national anthems, the Panamanian national anthem, then they played the Queen, and then our national anthem, of course, because of. Um, the piece in Northern Ireland was Danny Boy, and my dad sang it. And we, yeah. we, we and your up. dad, Barry. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Your yeah. dad, for the yeah. benefit of people listening, yeah. he'd represented Ireland at Eurovision, so yes. he had a good set of tubes. Oh, my, my dad was a re- tremendous singer, fabulous singer, and he was a self-taught musician. He played the saxophone, bass guitar, the concert flute. Uh, he was a very talented man. But it, the, it, his greatest asset was his voice. He had a, an amazing voice, and. Uh, he sang Danny Boy and uh, we thought you know we could play it uh, instrumentally but it wouldn't be the same as somebody standing up front and singing it so dad was chosen for that Phil Coulter the London Derry man had an amazing track record of, of Irish songs and he done the rendition and they, they got into the arena early in the day sang the song and they, they turned it on and it was like it's typical sort of uh, back in 1985 and of course this turned on the music and he sang it perfectly and he done two versions uh, two verses and a, and a chorus and that was it of course 27,000 or 26,000 people screaming their heads off he couldn't hear the music <laughs> this is the truth so my dad's uh, singing Danny Boy and he's half a beat behind the actual music and trying to listen but can't hear a goddamn thing done a really good job under the circumstances but I remember because it was such a sentimental song particularly for the north of Ireland it's from it's called the Derriere uh, and it's uh, you know it, it's a great sentimental song so I never listened to it for that reason because I've gone out to face the world champion I had to be in the best shape of my life I had to be really focused and so I didn't I used to hum a little tune or say a little prayer to myself to, to knock out the song and I couldn't hear the song or the words or the sentiment. And I looked down into the crowd and I would pick a spot and just not focus on it. So my brother Dermot slaps, he bangs out. And I, what, what? He said, he's staring at you. So he was giving me the death stare, Pedroza. So that I just give him the death stare back uh, so that, that it helped us get through the song, really. And, and everybody sang it with him. And it, it was amazing. You know, the noise was incredible and, and of course it was very emotional and um, we get to the end of the song uh, uh, which which I'm sort of pleased about and he's still giving me the death stare and in jumps this little leprechaun guy he starts throwing green did dust did you know about it? no I, I hadn't I, God be good to Barney Eastwood he, he died last or in March so I, uh, he came up with the idea he'd seen it in America I think Sean O'Grady had done it uh, the former lightweight champion but anyway he got in and he started this little. Uh, he was a he was a dwarf and he started doing car, <laughs> cartwheels. But he, he threw was, it. and he 
was shadow boxing as well. <laughs> it was. I didn't. I had to look back to see it, but I didn't. I saw him because he had this little fluorescent green on him, and Shane and he passed me once or twice, and he started. He threw the green dust and started doing cartwheels and. Uh, shadow boxing and the crowd loved it and, and and he was about to get out and Barney said no no do it again so mm. he went, he went but, round again it was very funny so the so the crowd were chanting here we go here we go and yeah. we've got the leprechaun jumping around yeah. doing cartwheels shadow boxing <laughs> and the crowd I mean as you said Barry were going insane this is absolutely astonishing the whole place rocking and reeling with sound here we go here we go rings up Almost every throat in the place. Did that put any pressure on you? Remember, you were only British European champion going in for the first time having your first world title shot. Did you feel any pressure with that with that crowd that was just crazy? Well, I, I, I the, the funny thing was, yes, I did feel pressure, a lot of pressure. But like, you know, you'll understand this, Spencer, yourself, because you get to a British title fight, then if you manage to get to a European title fight and the crowd get bigger, and the audience gets more intense and the pressure gets gets greater but it's it's part of the whole thing that you become accustomed to you so you learn to cope with it and the you know the, the funny thing is even though i went out there and and, and there was 26000 people there and the noise was intense it didn't feel like it enveloped you the way it did in the King's Hall. In the King's Hall, it just felt it would hit the ceiling and would come back down and wash over the top of you. And it was like deafening. So although it was, it was twice, three times the number of people, it didn't seem as noisy, put it that way. So, of course, the occasion, and that's the thing, you know, thinking, whoa, this guy's, you know... You, you 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 do stops and checks the whole way through your life as a, as a fighter. You think, am I good enough? And you build up and you spar with better guys and you develop and you think, yeah, maybe I am. And then one day you'll have a bad spar and you think, hold on a second, I'm out of my league here. You know, you, that's what, that's just what human nature is. That's what you do to yourself. Uh, you beat yourself up. But I knew that I had the capacity, I had the strength to give him a, a, a real run for his money. I don't think anybody had made him fight at the pace that I was going to make him fight at. That was my tactics anyway. But I had to get past his left jab. So I knew... Even before that first bell rang, this is going to be the hardest fight of my life. And and it's interesting. Um, there was the, the the Panamanian guys were there, and they, these guys like to have a bet, right? So we we go to the center of the ring. The ring's cleared after my dad sings a song, and uh, we're we're getting the instructions from Stanley Christodoulou, one of the best referees in the world for the WB. I think he's had over a hundred world title fights, or whatever. A brilliant guy, and and he had refereed a number of Pedroza's world title fights before. So we go to the center of the ring. He gives us our instructions, and we go back to the corner. Now, I didn't know this and only heard it later. The Panam one of the Panamanian seconds in Pedroza's corner follows Barney back to the corner, and you might see it if you, if you look at it. And he says to Barney, $100,000 says my man wins. And Barney's craning his neck. What? What did you say? And, and you'll see it. And Barney sort of brushed him away. You know, <laughs> don't come asking me this at, at the last minute. You know, if you want to put a bet on, blah, blah, blah. So he goes back to his corner, bell rings, and off we go. Coming up on Fight of My Life on Talk Sport. I knew that in this fight, I had to make him fight at a pace that would exhaust him, that his technical ability would disappear so that I would put on so much pressure that he would lose at equilibrium and I would just be relentless. Ready? 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Fifteen rounds for the World Boxing Association title Can McGuigan do it in front of this astonishing crowd of people Pedroza five feet ten, four inches tall long reach but no longer, amazingly enough it's the Finding My Life on Talk Sports. Spencer Oliver and me, Russ Williams, here with the great Barry McGuigan. And we're talking about that famous night, 8th of June 1985, Loftus Road Stadium. 25,000 fans in there. What a build up to this fight. What a ring entrance to the fight itself. Now, round number one. Barry, you know, both of you jabbing and moving well. Mm -hmm. Did you realise, though, straight away that this this fight was not going to be a walk in the park? Well, I I knew that from the beginning, Russ, and and, and I knew that the only way I was going to win this fight, I could never have stood off him. I I had to put him under pressure, and I'd I'd watched him fight before, and I'd watched him fight Jose Caba, I watched him fight Laporte, I watched him fight so many of the other guys that he'd beaten. You know, 18 defences, this was to be his 19th. And funnily enough, Larry Holmes had sent us a message and they were both on the same number of defences. He says, hey, hey you got to beat this guy. He says, he can't beat my record. So uh, he, he was wishing me the best of luck. But in any case, I knew that the only way that I was going to beat him, I, he was far superior to me technically. So it was pressure and pace. And the bell went and I ran straight at him. But I eat loads of jabs and his jab was great. And his he, he was bigger than I thought he was going to be. It was He was... I, you know, we had taken sparring partners that were similar size, but he just seemed to be tall and he had a long reach too. He had very good middle distance power and he at close range, he was a master. He could whip in uppercuts, turn his weight to the left-hand side, hit you with long hooks round the side and up the middle. But in the early rounds, he knew that the way to do it was to build up the point and outscore me and get ahead. So I knew that from the very first bell, I had to put him under pressure with, you know, educated pressure, but nonetheless, on top of him, forcing him back, 
keeping him on, uh, you know, train job with him. You know, we always say that to guys now. When a guy's got a good job, try and take it away. Jab with him and then throw the right hand over the top. Keep your head moving. Don't walk onto right hands or solid left hooks as you're walking in. So uh, uh, intelligent pressure. That was what I was trying to apply. Yeah, you could see it become evident from round one, Barry, that, that he had a brilliant jab and that was the reason why he'd been champion for so long. You could see that he had all those little moves. He yeah. slipped, he slid, and he made it very difficult for you. The first six rounds, I think the fight was quite even. Yeah. You was you was hustling to get inside, slip yeah. the shots and try and break that, that barrier down and break that distance down. Yeah. You eventually done that round seven. Yeah. Um, you, Pedroza was pushing you back. He yeah. put you on the ropes and then you slip the jab and come over with a beautiful... Right, right hand timing was perfect yeah. that was really the turning point wasn't it that that was there was a number of key elements in that fight and and i i want to take you back i'm going to ref, obviously focus on that seventh round because that really was the turning point that was when i drove a stake into his heart as it were metaphorically speaking but in the sixth round i worked him back to the ropes and he was quipping in uppercuts and he was thinking you know this guy's not as good at close range as he was and i threw a right hand which which he blocked with his with his left, and I threw a left hand up the middle, and he put his elbow across to block the left uh, hook. I was throwing it, trying to throw it to the pit of his stomach, and then I quickly threw a second one round the side, and it wrapped into his uh, into his rib cage. And you know you will know this as a fighter. You're these things they're done at like within sort of fourteen inches. You're right on top of them, and so I went left hook up the middle, put his elbow across, and I'm boom right round the side and I could hear him going oh and I, and you know you're right on, and you can hear the noise from the outside but you're right on top of him so you can hear him breathing and he grunted let a big groan out of him and I knew I'd hurt him and I went back to the corner and, and I and my brother had seen it and he used to bang the canvas he used, and he, nowadays he wouldn't be allowed but he'd bang the canvas to get my attention because the noise was so intense around but I knew when I walked and I bit on my gum shield and I went yes I've really hurt him with that left hook that was at the sixth round then the seventh came out and I'm trying to set him up for the right hand and he was obviously conscious of my, my left hook to the body and to the head, but I kept throwing, we used to call it the Smithborough Special because that was my old amateur boxing club, and we'd throw it to the body, throw right hand to the body, then throw it again, and he would tuck his elbow in, and halfway through the punch, I'm, I'm starting the punch off to the body and then turn it to the head, and, you know, halfway through it, and that's exactly the shot that worked on him. So I hit him right hand to the body and deliberately threw another one. He blocked it again and started off a third one, and then halfway through the movement, I turned it to the head, bang, hit him on the side of the head. Didn't hit him on the chin, but I hit him up around the cheekbone, and it dropped him. But Wigan's work has not been so effective in this round. He hasn't found the range. Yes, he did. He's got him with the right. Oh, the champion's over in the seventh. He found him with the right. And then all hell broke loose. I ran to the corner. I looked down at, at, at my own corner. You know the way you're told to, you know, always look to your corner for instructions. So I, I knew I'd hit him hard, but I didn't think I'd hit him hard enough. So I looked down to the corner and they said, you know, try, you try another right hand. So I walked in and I tried a big, a stupid one, really. What I'd done is I stepped across, and so he didn't know what I was going to do. So I stepped to my left, stepped to my right, and then threw a big sweeping right hook, and he just pulled his chin back, and it sailed past his chin. And he hit me with a left hook and an uppercut, and I went, oh, okay, he's not gone now. So I, I knew he wasn't that badly hurt, so uh, he, he was just sending me a message. But he pulled back, and I missed him, like, by a mile. So I knew he wasn't that badly hurt, Spencer. 
and Ross. Yeah, he went down. He, he looked unsteady, and then there was a. You had about thirty seconds, Barry. I think it yeah, was that yeah, you was piling on the pressure, yeah. and the noise in the in yeah. the in, in the ground was yeah. incredible. He showed the sign of a great champion, and what a great champion he was yeah. when he come out after that seventh round. Yeah. He comes out. He has a good eighth round. Yeah. You know you're in a real fight. Yeah. That ninth round, Barry was again a, a massive thing. He was trying to press you. He was started the That's round right. quite well. Right. He gets you on the rope. Yeah. Your back's against the ropes. Yeah. You land. A big right hook. Now this time he was hurt. Yeah, he was he was very badly hurt. And 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 well, I thought he was badly hurt. But uh, what what actually happened is right. He decided in the eighth round. You know, this guy can only fight one way. He can only come forward. And it's pretty much correct. <laughs> so he decided he'd back me up. And you're you're absolutely right. He's pulling, pushed me back to the to the right in the middle of the ring in the ninth round. And he's unloading with shots and blocking and unloading and, and, and playing with me. But he's right in punching distance. And I'm thinking right here, that right hand I missed him with after he got up in the seventh round, I'm going to try it again. So, but at this at this stage, he's fighting mid-range to close range with me. And as I say, his best thing was long range, but he was very good at close range. So he's backing me up and he's throwing up a cuts and left hooks. And I say, oh, he's right open for that. So I missed him with the left hook. And I came back with a right hook. Boom. Hit him on the temple. Good right. Cover with him and his legs are gone. The champion could be on his way out. His legs just done a funny dance and I ran after him and I, I, I missed him with another right hand that would have knocked him into kingdom come. And then I tried another left hook and another right hand and the noise, when his legs went, the crowd just, it was just deafening. You couldn't hear anything. And I'll, I'll tell you, we... I, it, what happened was when the bell rang, but nobody heard the bell. Not the referee, not me. Yeah. You couldn't hear anything, and I'm it banging. It was so loud, wasn't it? It was Barry? so loud. It was absolutely. And actually, Pedroza's um, trainer. Oh God, he went crazy. Quite agitated oh, with you, doesn't absolutely. he? Absolutely. He. What What happens? The, the bell goes, and and the ringer, and nobody hears it. And the bells come. Nobody's heard the bell, including the referee. The manager of Pedroza's in. Pedroza is on very, very rocky legs as he goes back to the corner. There was so much noise here. The whole place was cheering for McGunn. I heard the bell, but the two fighters and the referee didn't. I caught him a left hook and another left hook, and they weren't full-blooded shots, but I hit him a left hook, but I hit him about three or four punches after the bell because we didn't even hear it. Because the referee didn't hear it, but but you, you simply, it was, it was so deafening, you couldn't hear it. And of course, the crowd thought I had him. And the bell went, and of course, Santiago Del Rio came in berated the referee, berated us, screamed and shouted at us and, and he went back to the corner and, but he was furious. But we, we genuinely couldn't hear anything. And, and you listen on television and it's loud and clear, but for the fighters in there in the middle of the, that, that crazy atmosphere, you can't hear anything. So I just punched until the referee stopped me punching and, and you know, I, I, because I couldn't hear anything. So anyway, they, they went crazy. And, but the funny thing is he, he, he was better in the 10th uh, and and he, he came back again, you know. Pedroza showed the signs of that amazing oh, recovery, right. didn't he? And incredible. what a great champion he really yeah. was. I mean, it was incredible how he come back from that seventh round, that yeah. ninth round. You knew, Barry, that he was yeah. going to try and hang in there till the end. Right, right to the end. But then in the 13th round, Spence, I, 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 I nailed him again and I caught him. Again, it was a right hand. It wasn't the left hook. He was far too fly for me catching him with the left hook, but the right hand hurt him. And again, his legs went, and I hit him again two or three times, and he, he sagged back. And I thought, oh, and 
the, the referee is standing and, and it looks like he's going to jump in. So I look at the referee. What a stupid idiot I was. And he hit me <laughs> with a right hand bang on the chin. So I went, oh, there's nothing wrong, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with him. So I, I, I went back at him again. He was shaking, but he, again, his powers of recovery were, were incredible. And he got back into the fight again. And then I thought, you know, in the 15th round, I said I'd just move my head and box him a little bit and put on a bit of a bit of fancy stuff right before the end. But And I remember going back to the corner after the 14th round and Paddy Burns says to me, you've got three minutes to, to, to beat one of the best featherweights in this century. And I said, is this the last round? He says, yeah. He says, it's the last round. I did, that's how up I was, how you know, focus I was, I'd lost count of the round. So there you go. And and, and the, the 15th round, I just backed him up, tried to catch him right to the final bell. But like the solid, durable, credibly resourceful champion that he was, he hung in there to the end. And, you know, it, it was just amazing when it all... When it all finished, it was it was incredible. Barry, you finished the full fifteen rounds, obviously in a, in a world title fight situation when the pressure is really on. You'd never actually done that before. Uh, where did you find this extra energy from? Well, I, I, I was I was always very uh, I was stamina. Stamina was my thing. Uh, pace and power and stamina, and I trained ridiculously hard and so I, I gave myself an advantage so physically I was stronger much stronger than most guys at 126 pounds or nine stone so I just I was relentless and I, I you know you play to your powers don't you? you 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 take advantage of your of your powers. so my I knew that in this fight I had to make him fight at a pace that would exhaust him that his technical ability would disappear so that I would put on so much pressure that he would lose his equilibrium, he would lose his ability to keep me away from him, and I would just be relentless and stay on him. And that's what I tried to do. But but he kept his he kept his balance, he kept his you know, although I forced him back and won I thought quite convincingly, he was very, very tough and very, very resourceful and, and incredibly durable. <laughs> Fight of my life, Barry McGuigan, our special guest, Russ Williams here, Spencer Oliver over there, and we're having such a wonderful conversation remembering that great night on the 8th of June 1985 at Loftus Road in West London when you, Barry, became WBA featherweight champion of the world. So the fight is over, the ring is packed post-fight, you're getting dragged from pillar to post yep. by people, everyone wants, wants their arm around you, you're the man of the moment and then comes the announcement and confirmation that you're the champion forgive me for being slightly rude but it was probably the shortest announcement <laughs> ever wasn't it? Yeah, the, the, the MC was a guy called Danny Small from Belfast and I think his enthusiasm just got the better of him, he didn't read out the scores he just said, and the winner <laughs> by unanimous decision is Barry McQuicken. This is the result, a unanimous decision 
Barry McGuigan is McGuigan is McGuigan is the champion of the world. They've all voted for him. And all 25,000 people in the stadium had already voted for him. And of course, that's all the crowd wanted to hear, so they went bonkers. So he didn't read out the scoring of, of the, the judges, uh, but it was uh, by quite a wide margin. And then all hell broke loose. And in fact, all hell had broken loose before he announced it because all the media guys said that, that the crowd had in, you know, behaved impeccably up until that point and then the bell rang for the 15th round before the announcement, before of the, the scores were collated and the crowd just surged towards the ring and Tom Cryan, God be good to him, a former Irish independent uh, reporter said somebody stood on his shoulder and stood on his head wow. <laughs> to get up into the ring. They climbed over the top of these guys so they just they just walked along and jumped up on the chairs and, and it, was, it was a bit crazy so they didn't have the security then that they have now of course um, but so they, it took a, a long time to clear the ring and I don't think they ever quite cleared it uh, then we done the interview afterwards with Harry Carpenter, and I got emotional because I was thinking about young Ali, the 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 fight the fighter that had died from our fight back in 1982, and I I, did, I wasn't able to I was sort of slobbering, and and uh, Harry was able to articulate what I was saying and and tell it to the the, the audience. Let me say something to you. You've always thanked me for coming to Belfast. Let me thank you now for coming to London and giving us this victory. Oh, thank you very much, Harry. I'm so delighted. I'd like to take this opportunity, uh, you know, to to, to say one one thing. I've been thinking about it all week, and I said if I won this world title, I would dedicate it to the young lad that, 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 that died when he fought me in 1982. And I said at the start that... I would like it to be not just an ordinary fighter that beat him, but the world champion. What was the feeling, Barry, of actually becoming world champion? Do you remember what was going through your head, or, or was it all too much at the time? Well, I mean, to be honest, you you don't you don't actually think about that. You don't th you just think I've won the fight, and yes, I've won the world title. That's great, but it it doesn't resonate with you until you. And I'll, I'll tell you when it did resonate. Uh, I I got back to the. I've got a couple of funny stories if you want to hear them uh, about what happened at home M my mother and my sister Rachel and my auntie Breeds were the only ones in the family still there the rest were over at the fight and you know I went back to the dressing room I'll, I'll get this in chronological order and it was great and we met all those celebrities we had a great time and then we made our way back to our hotel and I was going to stay to the middle of the week in, in London but I got the news the following morning that my mum's house used to light a holy candle for me uh, <laughs> and it helped me win the world title and then burn the bloody house down. So we, by the time uh, we got that news, my, I diverted my ideas of going and staying to the, center, the middle of the week in London and we headed home on the Monday. And... The, you know, the, you know, you you wake up the next morning, you're world champion, and and the press were in the hotel, and they wanted to take a picture of me and my son and my wife in 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 our dressing ground, in in lying in bed and all of that, um, with the world title belt, and and that was that was fantastic, uh, and then we came home on the Monday, and there was seventy five thousand people in in in. Uh, in Royal Avenue in Belfast, so it took us, you know, uh, we drove down the the, we drove down. Royal Avenue, and it was like after it was like scenes you'd seen from the the end of the Second World War, where just thousands of people were out screaming and shouting, hanging out of the windows, and it was amazing. And we went down to the King's Hall and went out, stood out on the balcony and and sort of addressed the people and with the Lord Mayor, and 
later that day we went down to Clonus and it was you know, Clonus is a small town population, two thousand people. There was about thirty five thousand people there in the town. It was crazy. And it was that celebration and, and then believe it or not <laughs> I done fifteen rounds on the pads that night in in my dressing room or in my or in my little gym at the back of the house with my brother Dermot to get away from it all, and then on the Thursday of that week, we went to Dublin and it was three hundred and fifty thousand people in in Dublin to see me, and it was at that point that I realised how much that meant to Ireland and 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 in Belfast of course, and and, and what I meant to the Irish people north and south, and. It was such a huge, huge, uh, hugely important uh, part of our our struggle to get to the top and to bring the people together to fight uh, with the United Nations flag of peace on our shorts and to not alienate either Catholic or Protestant people and to send a message that we were we were trying to do something good and I'd like to think we were we were doing what the you know the Anglo-Irish Agreement had done se- several years later. Um, we, we, we showed them the way to go um, and, you know, we were very proud of that, both myself and Barney Eastwood. It was pandemonium in the ring when your name was announced that you had become world champion. The crowd were going wild, that you managed to get yourself back to that dressing room. When you had time to digest that, that you had actually become world champion, what was the feeling like in the dressing room? What was the atmosphere like in there, you know? Can you talk us through it? Yeah, they were all drinking champagne except me. I don't drink, never drank in my life. So, uh, And I was delighted that they were happy because I was thrilled. And I was thrilled that I'd actually done such a good job in the fight, that I'd stuck to my, my game plan, that I'd exercised the right tactics. And that I think as well that it was such a good fight. It was a competitive fight. And although I won by unanimous decision, it was still, he made it competitive right up to the end. And uh, it, it was just an incredible occasion. And then it, the noise, it was a noise that was just, we came out onto the street and got into the car and just the whole way from Loftus Road back to to the Edgware Road was, was just deafening, just hordes of people screaming and shouting and, and and it just seemed to take forever to get back to the hotel but we did nonetheless and I think most people uh, drank into the middle of the night and I, I got very little sleep myself and my wife and my son and then the press were there again early in the morning wanting to take pictures of us with the championship belt in our bed with our uh, nightgown on and my son Blaine who was only no he wasn't even uh, yeah he wasn't two and a half so um he was there with us, and it was oh, it was just amazing. And then we were uh, going to stay on to the centre uh, centre of the week. Really, sort of met. We we're thinking of staying until Wednesday, but Mum's house burned down, and uh, we decided we would go home, you know, on Monday instead. And it was pretty mad the whole thing after that. Barry, if you could change anything in your career, what would it be? To be honest with you, Spence, I wouldn't change anything. I had the most incredible time as a fighter. Incredible. It was just, I mean, it was bonkers. It was mad. We were going, it was going at 100 miles an hour. But I look back on it with real, uh, with real pride. And, um, you know, I'm very proud of what I achieved. Myself and Barney Eastwood, and, and as I said, we had a bit of a ruck at the end. And But, you know, at the end of the day, what we achieved together was just truly magnific- magnificent and um you know it, it was it was unbelievable you know i went on that year to win the bbc sports personality of the year the only 
non uh, UK winner of it. So it was it was um, incredible. The whole the whole thing was amazing. And 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 sure, I lost some fights, but do I regret anything? Absolutely not. I'm very very proud of my career. It was ephemeral, short, but very impactful. Barry, you're a national treasure, devoted father and husband, boxing legend, and above all else, a world champion. And uh, we've talked about the biggest night of your career in June of 1985 at Loftus Road on Fight of My Life. It's been an absolute pleasure, Spencer and myself. And I'm sure the listeners have thoroughly enjoyed listening to your forensic analysis <laughs> of that big night for you. Uh, we wish you the very best for the future. Thank you, Thank very, you much. very much for coming in. Enjoyed it. Barry McGuigan there on Fight of My Life. Keep listening to Talk Sport. Plenty more boxing life stories still to come. Until next time, from myself and Spencer, it's goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 